Hello, this is Politics and Humanities, a podcast out of American University. Uh, we're going to be talking about books, ideas, and liberal education. Uh, my name is Tom Merrill. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Government at American University, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Sarah Marsh. Sarah, why don't you say hi? Hello, everyone. Uh, greetings from American University. I'm Sarah Marsh. I teach in the Department of Literature and the Department of Critical Race and Gender Studies. And Sarah, we should say something about uh, why we're doing this podcast. And... So as the pandemic wore on, Tom and I became more and more convinced that there ought to be a place where we could talk to our friends at AU, our students, and also folks elsewhere about the importance of books, ideas, and liberal education in this moment, especially when these things are in increasingly dire crisis. Yeah, I mean, my own feeling is that we're all stuck in our living rooms or our bedrooms uh, on interminable Zoom calls, and we just need something for people to be able to um, talk to each other and have some kind of anchor for people to focus on as they're thinking about what does it mean to be a part of a community that cares about books and ideas um, and things like that. So that's that's the, the reason why we're doing this. Um, Sarah, uh, before I get started, I have to ask, have you done a podcast before? This is my very first one. <laughs> so, uh, if we mess up, we're going to, uh, uh, take it in stride, uh, correct? <laughs> this is right. also my first. That's yeah. Right. So, okay. I uh, have to say that as a disclaimer. Sarah, we're both people who uh, care about books and, uh, to the extent that we can't have a conversation without having a, a text in front of us. Uh, I think that's a fair statement. Um, and today we have, uh, we're actually going to talk about three different texts, but we're going to start with two texts that were published in the Chronicle of Higher Education. What, do you want to introduce those? Absolutely. So the first one is uh, an article that was uh, published by Jonathan Kramnik. Um, it's called uh, The Humanities After COVID-19. Uh, and the second one is uh, from a little bit uh, longer ago. It's called Academe's Extinction Event by Andrew Kay. And Tom selected these readings for us to start with because I think, Tom, you felt that they summarized some of the difficulties that the university in general and the liberal arts in particular are facing right now. Um, so do you want to say a little bit more about why you picked them? Yeah, I just, um, I mean, I, I just wanted to start with kind of a, an idea of where we are and what our context is. I mean, I think in later episodes, we're going to be talking about a lot of books that uh, are not of our exact time. Um, but I just wanted to start by thinking about, like, what is it that we're doing and why is it that we're doing it? And and I picked these, um, I, th I think they're both interesting pieces that, that um, we're actually going to put the links up on the episode page for this uh, this episode on, on our website. Um, but they, uh, I think, just help us start thinking about what, it, what exactly is the problem that we're going through. I mean, everybody knows that we're in the middle of a pandemic, but I think the humanities in particular uh, are going through a crisis that's deeper and broader than the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic may be accelerating certain tendencies. But without understanding what that broader crisis is, uh, we can't really think about you know, what the future should look like or what we should be doing in this moment. That's right. Um, and I think for our students who are tuning in, we might want to just 
define some terms really quickly for them. Um, so what do we mean when we say the liberal arts and what do we say when, or what do we mean when we say the humanities? Um, do you want to take a swing at the liberal arts and then I'll do the humanities? Uh, sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I hadn't thought of a definition in advance. I, I guess off the cuff, I would say um, liberal education is about um, reading texts that are going to force you to think about your own deepest beliefs and to really become clear on and question beliefs that you hadn't thought about before. And that the way that we do that, or at least the way that I think about what I do in class, is um, I try to pick texts that are going to create a certain amount of cognitive dissonance um, and force people to think about issues that we often don't bring up or we don't talk explicitly about as questions. Uh, and the texts are also important for other reasons that they, you know, tell us about important parts of our history or uh, traditions within which we live. But the core is really um, that process of self-examination and 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 ultimately of self-ownership. I guess I would say. That's. I think that's right. I think that the humanities, um, in much the same way, are about entering into conversations with other people from other times who have faced the same questions that we, that we all grapple with. You know, why am I here? Why is there suffering? Um, what should we do about it? These are questions that people have grappled with in writing for hundreds of years. And one of the important things about the humanities, um, and I say this as a, a literature scholar in particular, is entering into dialogue with people across generations. And as you say, Tom, the different historical contexts that people write out of give us a lot of important information about history and the kinds of progress or not that we've made, um, but they also tell us something about universal human striving, as you say, to own oneself, um, to be, uh, to be uh, in charge of, of one's own life. Right. And I, I should say that, I mean, you come from literature, I'm coming from political theory. Uh, political theory is the part of political science. I'm, so I'm in a department of government, which is often in the social sciences. But political theory is the part of political science that's closest to the humanities. Although we, I think we uh, center the, the political dimension more so than you do. Um, we could talk, well, I'm sure we will talk about that over the course of this episode and other episodes. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so what's the, uh, what, how do, how do we feel after reading these articles? <laughs> right. So getting back to the articles, um, by Jonathan Kramnik, uh, and Andrew Kay, the, the general tone of these articles and a lot of things that are published in the Chronicle of Higher Education is, is one of impending, uh, doom and, uh, and it's kind of a genre, isn't it? It really <laughs> is. <laughs> like the yeah. world is ending. <laughs> Um, yeah. And, you know, Kramnik's thesis uh, is that the crisis that had begun in the humanities maybe about a decade ago has now become, with the advent of COVID-19, a complete catastrophe. Um, and he situates the, the source of this in that there is no academic hiring of any meaningful kind going on. Uh, and those of us who do watch the MLA job list uh, and who pay attention to the academic job market, I think we'll see that that is increasingly the case this year. I think Kramnit posits that 
there may not be any jobs at all this year, next year, uh, or the year after that. Um, and he talks about the fundamental problem this creates for higher education, uh, which is that there's going to be a generational lag in the transmission of knowledge, the, the new energy that young scholars would bring to their fields is going to be lacking or not really there at all. Yeah, I mean, so I, I was trying to think about what's the genre of this article as opposed to the K article. The, the, this feels to me like it's a, a memo that you write to your dean, right. and then you're like, "Hey, wait a minute, I, maybe I could get this published in the Chronicle." Of Higher <laughs> Education. But uh, I mean, there, there is something important in difference between the two articles that K or Kramnik is a, I believe, is a full professor at Yale. That's isn't that right? right? And uh, and it feels very serious and very. Um, much like what are we departments going to do in order to overcome this, the crisis, um, which by the way, is not just, uh, well, number one, it's not just within uh, English departments or literature departments. I mean, I think that political theory jobs, um, I think I saw somebody on Twitter say that there are only two jobs posted for the entire country for the year. So I think this, this is a, a more widespread thing. Um, but it's also not just because of COVID-19, right? I mean, there, this is because of trends that have been going on for some time and that COVID seems to have really brought a focus to or brought things to a head, but the, but the underlying trends are not, not new. That's right. I mean, for a very long time, I would say probably for the last 10 years in my field, uh, there have really only been between five and 10 jobs advertised nationally. Uh, and so that is a good deal smaller than the number of PhDs that are being produced every single year. And so the crisis of COVID-19 uh, is, I think, a long time in the making. And the the pipeline is incredibly clogged. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's very much my sense. I mean, for in political theory, for the past 10 years or so, you know, for a while, foundations were, were funding postdocs. But the problem was that postdocs just meant there were more people on the market for longer um, and without a uh, corresponding increase in the number of actual jobs that were out there. And so uh, I guess that part of the message here is it's not clear that a PhD in any one of these fields is... Uh, is a very sure investment for a person's life chances. That's right. And I think when you consider that the PhD often takes folks up to a decade to complete, maybe longer, right? right. and that that decade is located- Prime time in your country, in yeah, your life, right? Absolutely prime real estate of, of one's own life. Uh, and so I think that there are questions, there are very real questions about- to what degree should someone commit this very valuable time to earning a degree that may or may not position one to have uh, meaningful or gainful employment on the flip side? So I, I have some some slight, somewhat contrarian views, or or at least I want to make the opposite case. Sure. Uh, I mean, for for one thing, I mean that the the. the the hallmark of the COVID time is that we all think the world's ending. And so we, we sort of act as though that, you know, everything, you know, it's like that passage from the communist manifesto, all that solid melts into air. Um, but I, I, you know, I just, I really wonder whether in six months, you know, the COVID thing will seem more manageable than it does right now. 
and that we'll be back to the problems that we had, you know, say last January, which mm-hmm. were serious and and longstanding. But I, I I'm not so sure that that COVID uh, represents sort of the end of academia as we know it, <laughs> or at least not in any way more than than the, 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 the place that we were before. I think you're right, Tom, to point out that we should not let the pandemic distract us from the deeper systemic issues that were in play long before this virus emerged. And I think those ought to you know, occupy our efforts to you know, really try to expand hiring again and to support new graduate students, not just with postdoctoral fellowships that maybe last for two or three years, but for longer term, more meaningful employment. And that that's a much bigger right. question. And can I just say, I mean, from a political economy point of view, I mean, it, it's not quite true that there are not no longer jobs for people doing liberal education like things, right? I mean, I mean, it's, I don't know, we don't want to talk about our own university too much, but um, it is, you know, one fact about American university is that the um, the percentage of faculty who are in full-time but non-tenure track has grown incredibly over the past 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so there are jobs there, but they're not tenure track jobs and they're not always attached to departments. And, uh, and so, which to me, um, and there's a lot of things that could be said about that situation, but to me, that says that, you know, there really is a market demand. I mean, you, there still are 18 year olds who are coming to college who need to be shown something about the world and taught how to think for themselves. Um, and so that, that market demand hasn't gone away, but the departments haven't done a very good job of somehow speaking to it or filling that, that need. I think you're right. I mean, my own experience reflects the very um, forces that you're talking about. I came to AU uh, as a member of the writing program, even though I was you know, not trained uh, as a compositionist. I was trained as a literary critic, and I worked for a long time in the writing program, and then I began to branch out and teach other things. And so I think that this uh, this demand is absolutely there. And the students I meet in first year classes at American University are hungry for the kinds of work that we do. And in that sense, we ought to be celebrating because I don't know that the kinds of intellectual work that we're doing uh, with undergraduate students are really available in, in any other place. Uh, I think that we have to do a better job of of making the case for that kind of intellectual work, which is, again, part right. of the point of this podcast is talking about what that work is. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree. And I also just say on the, on the side of, of feeling optimistic, at least at AU about the future, I mean, I, there are many colleges and universities that are going to have real problems and some of them will go under. And I have friends who um, are at different places who have already lost their jobs. And, and that's a you know, uh, real human suffering. But uh, at AU, I mean, you think about who comes to AU, people who are interested in politics, because you're in Washington, D.C., and the demand to be in person because you can go off and get internships. I mean, that's sometimes it seems like that's the only way that we ever sell the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hate to say it, but that's like an oil well that's not going to dry up anytime soon. Okay. I mean, we can't, obviously, now that we're all virtual for the fall, it's a slightly different situation, but that won't be forever. Um, so I, I still think that that, I mean, sometimes I think we can screw up in uh, 10, 10 million different ways, 
because the demand is so strong, for, at least for us, given where we are. I agree. And I think that when students come to Washington, D.C., they have a particular kind of idea about what they will do, right? They'll they'll right. go down to the hill and have an internship or they'll... Misguided though it may be. <laughs> and, they'll, and they'll get a... Um, they'll they'll become involved with the think tank or you know there there are lots of different ways that students imagine their involvement in the city and what i find so wonderful uh is that once we have students with us on campus it's also possible to take them down to see the monuments on the mall go to the smithsonian institute go to the library of congress and really you know help them to tap into that that history of ideas that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast where they enter into conversation with interlocutors from you know all all across history and there's not there's no place like Washington D.C. for doing that kind of work. I think. Right, right. We should we should uh, turn to the uh, the K article, which is uh, lively and entertaining, and I, I recommend it to to all of our listeners. So this is Adam. I'm sorry, Andrew K.'s uh, article called "Academes Extinction Event," and the subtitle is "Failure, Whiskey, and Professional Collapse at the it's MLA." The whiskey. Was the whiskey the cause of the professional class? <laughs> they have a role to play. <laughs> or was it the effect of the... <laughs> <laughs> so again, for our students t- tuning in, the MLA uh, is an acronym for the Modern Language Association. And every year, the MLA has a convention where folks get together and give papers about uh, literature uh, and they also use this convention as a sort of a hiring symposium for all of the new PhDs who are looking for jobs. Uh, And so Andrew Kay uh, decides that he's going to go to MLA one year and just write about it from a sort of journalistic standpoint, not as a participant. But you have to say that that he 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 does have a PhD in in English That's from right. the University of Wisconsin at Madison, quite successful for for somebody with a PhD. Right, he's got articles published, uh, failed to get a job, and so this this is this is in the genre of um, academics who are dropping out of the academy, and there and I think that there are many texts in this uh, because there are many such such people. Right. I mean, this is a growing genre. And, you know, I have to say, uh, the year after I earned my PhD, I worked in the government for about nine months before getting my job at American University. So this is a very, I think, common pathway and increasingly common as we you know, navigate the, uh, the stalled pipeline. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Kay writes, um, in the opening of the article, he says, how can I conjure MLA 2019 for you? And then he says, have you ever seen that viral picture from 2017 of a party of Oregon golfers calmly putting while in the near distance, a wildfire consumes the landscape? Trees blacken, smoke, pinkish gray shrouds everything in impasto blots. Nature itself seems to creak, groan, and at last give way. But the golfers go blithely on. The conversion of this Edenic space into Dantean incandescence won't interfere with the genteel game they know and love. Or, if it will, (laughs) they are determined to get in one last round before the region is raised. I am the ball, Chet. One can hear them saying, not on the cataclysm. 
Eye on the ball, Sarah. <laughs> Eye on the ball. <laughs> and so this, right. is, yeah, this is the language that that Kay is using to to try to get us to think about what having a convention, usually at a at a fancy hotel, um, in the midst of disciplinary catastrophe and and broader institutional collapse. Like how can and, we- and this is. This is all before the pandemic. Exactly. Right? I mean, this is this is a whole year ago, right? Um, and one one of the funny lines in this was that at the end of the article, he uh, he calls up some of his former graduate school classmates, none of whom got jobs, and he says, uh, "Using a video conferencing app called Zoom." <laughs> <laughs> like you didn't have to put that in there if this had been written in twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was before all of our lives had migrated online. Um, uh, so, you know, I think that, you know, Kay is very, very funny and, and self-effacing mode here covers up what is, I think, real anguish over uh, the state of things, uh, not least of all, because what we do is so important. And, right. you know, I think, and Tom, you might want to say more about this from the, the context of political theory, but I think you know, in literature, there's this real sense of not knowing what is going to happen at the same time as being deeply convicted that this work absolutely must not die. Uh, so I feel that very much as well. I mean, I, I guess the thing that I was struck by, I mean, number I, I I wonder if to one has to ask, and without wanting to be rude, one has to ask: to what extent is this um, a real diagnosis of a crisis versus is this a, is this a professional crisis or a personal crisis? Mm. Um, and I and I think there there is a, a, a tendency to um, exaggerate the like everything's going to hell. Um, and and it's look, it's a very traumatic thing. And I, I think part of the problem of graduate school is that you are on the one hand having kind of an existential crisis over figuring out what your own identity is mm-hmm. uh, in a very kind of deep way. And on the other hand, you're trying to get into this guild, which um, like all guilds, you know, wants to have a high bar to, to keeping people in. And there are many, many intelligent people who I think deserve places in the university who, who fell off of that train right through, um, I, I wouldn't say exactly no fault of their own, but but um, just because you know the, the process is weird and complicated, and there are landmines that that you're not expecting, um, and there's always some part of you that's like, well, I would rather go and have a regular job that is controllable. Um, you know, do you do you did you ever hear this joke when you were in graduate school? Um, why did you start smoking? <laughs> I, I started smoking because I wanted to start something I could finish. <laughs> I've heard that one. <laughs> our, our joke was was just that it was like an exercise in sitting in front of a mirror for ten years. Um, right. Yeah. Well, that's yes. That's that's very much in the same spirit. Um, the thing that I love about this article is that it's a little bit like Hunter S. Thompson goes to an academic <laughs> convention, right? I mean, because he's he's drinking, he's going up, he's he's accosting random people who turn out to be you know former presidents of the MLA. <laughs> Um, he's going to, to panels and he's making fun of panels, you know, which I mean, so I, I've never been to the MLA. I know nothing about it, I, but I do have my own conference or political science has its own conference at the uh, American Political Science Association conference. It meets every, every fall. And, and the experience is very much the same, right? It's, uh, 
it's kind of like a comic novel of there are the big fish and then there are all these people who are trying, who are on the make, right. Who are Mm -hmm. trying to impress people. Uh, so you're really excited when some famous person, you know, shows up at your panel and of course they promptly go to sleep and then all of your points get, (laughs) get avoided. But, uh, it, it really, you could, you could easily, and there have been many academic novels, right. David Lodge, um, comes to mind. So, uh, I, I just enjoyed it. And, and, you know, I mean, the guy has real insight, right. I mean, he, he really understood something and and painted a picture. He's an excellent literary stylist. I mean, this is a person who has a a very deep grasp on, you know, how to, how to tell a story, how to set up a scene. Uh, And he's, you know, he's doing it as a journalist here. Um, But I think there's so much of the article that bespeaks real talent um, in in literature um, and in, in literary studies. So the thing that uh, really struck me about the article uh, are the way that the big personalities kind of come in and out uh, and they- This form- is your world. So you you have some idea who these I do, are. right. And so these are all names. When he's talking about the names of the people uh, he, he meets at MLA and then sort of like, you know, tosses back a tumbler of whiskey and goes over and introduces himself. <laughs> I can totally relate because right. yeah. as a person who never actually went over to introduce herself, um, you know, this is the other side of it. And I do know something of the, what is it? It's the terror of being found out. Uh, and not, it's imposter syndrome. Exactly. And everyone talks about yeah. it. Um, and I think a lot of people, even people who have academic jobs, uh, the lucky folks who, who made the transition like me, right. I've got it too. And, you know, it's, it's funny in the ways like that it persists and it really directs the way we interact with one another. Um, I think it's like the worry of, of not having read the thing that comes up. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, academics are a deeply insecure group. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why that is, but it, it's just, I mean, because from some point of view, I mean, given, you know, all the horrible things that are going on and the, the job insecurity and so on. Um, but it is like the best way of life, right? I mean, you know, it's a privilege to be in the classroom with students. It's a privilege to be able to read whatever crazy book you feel like reading, to write what you want to write, to really study something and fall in love with it. I mean, I, I just, I, it's, uh, you know, why why aren't we happier? <laughs> I do. I always tell my students that I have the best job in the world and, and, then um, I am persistently caught up in questioning whether or not I'm qualified to have it. Uh, yes. And I yes. Think, but I think that comes with the territory, right? I mean, we're, we're trained to, to question and to doubt uh, and to do that self-examination. And so to the degree we're, we're turning our methodologies in on ourselves, I mean, a certain amount of that has to be, has to be yes. par for the course. Yes. And, and even healthy. I think so. Eye on the ball, Tom. Yeah. Yeah, high on the ball. That's right. The The volcano is behind me. Um, I want to get back to your your insight that there really is still a demand for what it is that we do. Uh, We were talking about how we do it in the context uh, of our campus at American University. Uh, Do you have any thoughts, Tom, about the sort of a wider national? message about about the importance of higher education or the the ways we might rewrite the narrative on the flip side of the pandemic 
Oh, uh, well, I, I mean, I do. I'm not sure if, if you really want to hear them. Um, I mean, I, look, I mean, I guess I think uh, that the politics part is really important. I mean, that's why I wanted to have the politics in the title of the, the podcast. Um, so I don't know why the humanities are in decline in, in a long-term way, but I am pretty sure that universities have a very hard time actually talking about politics, mm-hmm. which means talking to people that you disagree with. Um, and I mean, look, it's just a, it's like a stunning fact that 95% of uh, academics are folks who present themselves on the left. Um, and I think the university has just, as a, as a, as a whole, has had a really hard time um, talking to the folks on the conservative side. Mm-hmm. Now, that's in part because the folks on the conservative side are sometimes crazy, right? That's, that's certainly true. Um, but, um, I, you know, I see it in the university sometimes when you talk to people and, and you ask about their class and say, well, what about conservative students in your class? And they look at you like, well, you stepped in the dog poop, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and there's this, this kind of, um, just like, Ooh, like, do we really have to talk about this? Like, this makes me feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but I mean, I get, I would guess probably 30 or 40% of, of the students at even at American university identify self-identify as conservative. Mm-hmm. And um, if we're unwilling or we telegraph that, like, we think that you're really icky, then it's not surprising that they sort of react negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's part of the problem. That's not to say that we, you know, should agree with them. Uh, I mean, you know, you'd have to go issue by issue. But um, I just think that's a that's a that's the long term. Like somehow we've gotten away from where kind of like the cutting edge of the conversation in the country is partly because as a country, we're so bad about actually talking about things. Um, and so we've kind of sequestered ourselves talking to the people that we want to talk to Mm -hmm. the people that we think are like us. Yeah. And, and we can't, we can't stay in that place. And that's, so that's my, I always uh, engage my students in a discussion about, what our classroom is for. And it's tricky for students, especially first year students, I think, who are coming out of high school. And for the longest time, the project of learning has been to figure out what the teacher wants you to do. And I I think that's the first thing that university students have to unlearn whenever they, when they arrive in college. And I, I always tell my students, the trick here is, is not, to, not to think what I think, because I'm already, I'm already doing that. You got to think what you think. And my job is to be a conduit for you to have your ideas and by having your ideas become who you are. And that is a very, very hard thing for first year students to learn how to do because they've been so deeply socialized, many of them, not universally, but many of them have been deeply socialized. We try to figure out what the authority figure in the room wants them to do. And I I have to busily show them that I'm not really the authority figure in the way that they think. Um, So that I think is part of it. Um, There's also a really interesting narrative out there. um, I think among uh, conservative commentators, some of them, not universally, that the university is a site for liberal indoctrination. Right. Uh, and I think that that's, that doesn't come from nowhere. Um, I also think that it's, you know, 
kind of problematic claim when I have a really difficult time persuading my students to, oh, I don't know, like staple the pages of their papers together. Um, whereas, you know, on bigger ideological questions, right, I, um, I don't see the classroom as a place for, for that kind of work. Um, but I, um, I do wonder if students expect it especially especially now right when when national activism is really at a, a high pitch um, in response to the uh, killing of George Floyd, the pandemic, the upcoming presidential election I mean do you think students really expect that kind of engagement in the classroom? Uh, I, I do and and there's and it's that's not an illegitimate expectation that that students um, understandably want to know, um, want us to be talking about the things that they care about, and I, I think that's that's just completely normal, right? That's a, that's a very human thing. Um, I wanted to say something about the conservative um, critique that you know universities are indoctrinating people. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a wide variety, right? So, so one ought to be skeptical about generalizations, but um, so one response to that is, well, what is it that you want in response? is it what you want is simply indoctrination in the other way? And that often feels like what they're really asking for, right? So we're going to create a conservative university of our own mm-hmm. um, where we're going to have the true teaching. Um, and I think that that's, that's also um, opposed to the spirit of liberal education. Mm-hmm. The second response is actually the conservative students get a better education oftentimes, not in every case. I and mean, sometimes when kids are feel put down and, and feel very unhappy, but um, it's not, uh, it's a matter of, it's a way of showing your respect for someone to disagree with reasons. And for conservative students to have to make their case to somebody who is skeptical mm-hmm. is is a gift. Yes, we talk, a gift. we talk a lot in class about extending to one another the dignity of critique. That that's the the highest form of appreciation, of, of recognition. Uh, is to genuinely engage a person on on questions, on disagreements, and to understand the classroom as like the place for that kind of work. Right? It's not for de- delivery of content. Uh, it's certainly not for you know yes and no debates about you right. know individual right. issues. Right? It's about Right. <laughs> I mean, the last thing you want us to is to like, and now the conservative point of view, and now <laughs> like, oh, please shoot me now. Well, and this is why I mean, you know, we talk about this a lot, right? I mean, this is why historical texts are so incredibly important to what we do, right. because they they sort of denaturalize our contemporary commitments to particular issues and questions, uh, and they give us opportunities for considering these very human problems under completely different historical pressures. Um, right. And that's why, you know, I think as, as a person who studies the 18th century, um, that's where a lot of the energy from my classes comes from, is from that strangeness of, of history and, and from the very different ways of considering problems that history offers us. Oh yeah, I think that's that's a that's a really nice way of saying it. That that it it somehow scrambles our expectations and scrambles. Uh, we're not sure which side to be on. Now, in some cases, we know which side to be on, but but um, 
you know, it, it, that process of estrangement that even, even if the historical texts weren't there, Mm -hmm. um, we would have to create something that would, that would serve that pedagogical function. Yeah, that's right. right. And, um, um, if I could make just a, a really quick plug for reading literary texts and especially reading fiction, you know, fictional texts, there's this question, well, why should, why should we read fiction? What good is that? Um, yeah. just pretend or imaginary. Um, and the answer is yes. And that's exactly why we need it. Um, because it offers us these counterfactual instances to consider situations, problems, questions in a completely alternative reality that can nevertheless give us insights and information about where we find ourselves with, you know, the benefit of that like experimental frame. And so whenever I, you know, teach Frankenstein, for example, or, um, or Pride and Prejudice, you know, we talk about why should we read these, you know, very old books, isn't Pride and Prejudice just a love story? And it is, but it's, it's many, many other things besides. Um, And it's that, you know, long form engagement with the text that I think is most of the point. Yeah. It's a kind of training of your imagination to get outside of your own head. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I, yeah, live in, live in the life of someone else, even if only very briefly. Right. Right. Uh, so Sarah, I actually brought a passage that uh, helped me think about what liberal education is or can be. Um, do you mind if I read it? Please do. Um, so, so this is a passage from um, the the book, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, uh, written by Frederick Douglass, and of course, uh, everybody knows Frederick Douglass uh, uh, starts his life as a slave on the eastern shore of Maryland, um, frees himself, and goes on to become um, the greatest abolitionist of the 19th century, uh, but also one of the most important American statesmen of the, of the 19th century. And we're not supposed to be political when, uh, on this podcast. Uh, but I, I think I can say, um, I would be very pleased to see Frederick Douglass on a piece of currency. Oh, that would be um, terrific. I think that would, that would be an appropriate <laughs> place for where the country is. started. Yeah, right. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a passage from, uh, I believe it's chapter uh, 10 uh, of The Narrative of the Life. Uh, he tells the story multiple times in different books, but this, this is the first time he tells it. Um, and this, this uh, so the, the, the dramatic highlight of the, the text is this famous confrontation wrestling match that he has with Covey the slave breaker um, that, that people may recognize. And, and my students are reading this in their class, this term, so hopefully this will help. So I'm going to just read. Um, Our house stood within a few rods of the Chesapeake Bay, whose broad bosom was ever white with sails from every quarter of the habitable globe. Those beautiful vessels robed in purest white so delightful to the eye of freemen, were to me so many shrouded ghosts to terrify and torment me with thoughts of my wretched condition. I have often, in the deep stillness of a summer Sabbath, stood all alone upon the lofty banks of that noble bay and traced, with saddened heart and tearful eye, the countless number of sails moving off to the mighty ocean. The sight of these always affected me powerfully. My thoughts would compel utterance. And there, with no audience but the Almighty, I would pour out my soul's complaint in my rude way with an apostrophe to the moving multitude of ships. 
You are, mo- are loosed from your moorings and are free. I am fast in my chains and am a slave. You move merrily before the gentle gale, and I sadly before the bloody whip. You are freedom's swift-winged angels that fly around the world. I am confined in bands of iron. Oh, that I were free. Oh, that I were on one of your gallant decks and under your protecting wing. Alas, betwixt me and you, the turbid waters roll. Go on, go on. Oh, that I could also go. Could I but swim if I could fly? Oh, why was I born a man of whom to make a brute? The glad ship is gone. She hides in the dim distance. I am left in the hottest hell of unending slavery. Oh, God, save me. God, deliver me. Let me be free. Is there any God? Why am I a slave? I will run away. I will not stand it. Get caught or get clear. I'll try it. I had well die with ague as the fever. I have only one life to lose. I had as well be killed running as die standing. Only think of it. 100 miles straight north, and I am free. Try it? Yes, God helping me, I will. It cannot be that I shall live and die a slave. I will take to the water. This very bay shall bear me into freedom. The steamboat steered in a northwest, northeast course from North Point. I will do the same. And when I get to the head of the bay, I will turn my canoe adrift and walk straight through Delaware into Pennsylvania. When I get there, I shall not be required to have a pass. I can travel without being disturbed. Let but the first opportunity offer, and come what will, I am off. Meanwhile, I will try to bear up under the yoke. I am not the only slave in the world. Why should I fret? I can bear as much as any of them. Besides, I am but a boy, and all boys are bound to someone. It may be that my misery and slavery will only increase my happiness when I get free. There is a better day coming. Thank you, Tom. So what should we say about this? (laughs) So I think, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to bring the passage to the podcast is as a kind of response to the first two articles about the unfolding catastrophe uh, in the liberal arts and in the humanities in particular. And Tom, you were talking about how this passage is a model for for thinking through some of the some of our present difficulties. Yeah, I guess I would I would say I mean sometimes people say that liberal education is opposed to activism that that, that there are different models of what people should be doing in their college years, and I think that's that's wrong. I mean I think that they're different, and it's important to see that they're different, um, and that if we try to collapse them, then we we're not going to do either one very well, but. Um, you know, this is a text. Uh, Frederick Douglass at this point is is trying to prepare himself for this heroic act of um, moral responsibility, mm-hmm. right? Um, that this 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 happens immediately before this this famous confrontation with the slave breaker, uh, and Douglass knows full well as he's giving this speech what he thinks he has to do, and and all, but also that that the the consequence is very likely that that he'll get killed. And so he's he's trying to, as it were, put on his mental armor for this her- heroic act of activism, mm-hmm. right? That, which is really the beginning of this incredible career of freeing himself and then becoming a public figure and 
an advocate for the end of slavery and then after the war for for the the, the social and political conditions of black people. Um, but I think that all of that couldn't have happened without this moment of reflection, mm-hmm. without this moment of contemplation in which he gives a speech, um, as he says, with no audience but the Almighty. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's that's what we're supposed to be doing with liberal education, right? That we're trying to figure out what we think. We're trying to get a clear grasp in our own heads about what what kind of a world do we live in. Um, what do we think is the truth about the world? Uh, I mean, it's look, it's an existential question, um, God or no God. Right. right. Uh, the, ver- which- the very God that he addresses at the, at the top of the passage, he goes on to, to wonder, question. you know, is that God even there? Uh, yeah, for sure. And, and how could you not for, for a person in his condition that, um, that the universe seems to be indifferent to the suffering and to the just demands of Frederick Douglass and and of others like him. And the thing that prompts Douglass's insight while he's looking over the, the Chesapeake Bay is the, the low moment of the narrative. Uh, just a few paragraphs before, right, he says, uh, Mr. Covey succeeded in breaking me. And of course, Douglas has been sent to Covey to, to break him of his resistant spirit through violence. And he says, Mr. Covey succeeded in breaking me. I was broken in body, soul, and spirit. My natural elasticity was crushed. My intellect languished. The disposition to read departed. The cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. The dark night of slavery closed in upon me, and behold, a man transformed into a brute. And he's lamenting the animalizing effects of this persistent violence. Um, And the thing that is so telling about this to me is that it's marked by the departure of his desire to read. Um, And that is the sort of darkening effect of, of, of this condition of bondage. Well, or to, to put it slightly uh, from the other side, right? I mean, Douglas has to have two liberations, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's the moral liberation and the physical liberation of the, you know, that, that is symbolized by the fight with Covey, mm-hmm. but there's also this, this internal um, liberation um, that that corresponds with reading the books and with the speech to to the Chesapeake, in which he he really owns his own um, his own place in the world, right? Right. Um, so there's a spiritual tyranny that goes along with a physical tyranny. I guess this would be one way of saying it. Right. And earlier in the narrative, Douglas identifies learning how to read. So when his uh, his enslaver Sophia Ald. Uh, begins to teach him the ABCs, he he immediately uh, attaches to that intellectual work as a way out of the mental darkness of slavery, even if his physical condition of bondage, of being the chattel of another, uh, persists. He knows that he can locate an internal intellectual freedom that I think is the... the um, manifestation of that is on the banks of the Chesapeake when he's looking out at the ships. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that it it really is a contemplative moment or a reflective moment, um, and and I mean, you think about parallel examples, but you know, one might think of um, the philosopher in Plato's Republic mm-hmm. who gets outside of the cave and and is somehow able to see the world in its in its totality, mm-hmm. right? That but it's that moment of vision that that somehow. Um, is is very very important for for Douglas as he as he prepares himself for this titanic struggle. Um, I guess I, so. I mean, I think about what we do in the classroom is that we're trying to preserve that moment of of contemplation. Mm-hmm. Right? That we're trying to help people somehow think through for themselves, and and the the texts that we give them are are um, sometimes I think about it like a gym, like they're different exercise machines. Yes. And everyone is, is is trying to work out a different muscle or help you see a different part of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, I guess I would say the contemplation is the the soil or the the preparation for the the act of moral responsibility that has to come later. I think that's right. And I think the point you made earlier, Tom, about the relationship of intellectual work to activism. Um, is here really fully elaborated by Douglas because it is the, the preparatory work of moral groundedness of the the insight uh, that he knows he will risk his own life in order to free himself uh, that he he's not going to wait for someone else to free him he's gonna he's gonna take his life into his own hands quite literally. Um, right. his his lived life into his own hands and and confront Covey. Um, this, you know, this is the kind of importance I would attach to to the classroom. We're, we're helping students work through questions and problems to get them to insights so that you know they've got them whenever it's time to go out into the world. And, and do the thing um, instead of um, thinking about the thing. And of course, thinking about the thing is always important, but making the transition um, is, is, I think, the, the, real, the real value of, of the liberal arts classroom is, is teaching people how to transform uh, what they've thought through into meaningful ways of being in the world. Yeah, to, for taking responsibility, which means in practice, not not just in a, at an MLA conference where everyone's showing off and <laughs> trying to impress, you know, the the, the big Harvard professor or whatever. Um, I mean, I guess another way of saying this is, um, you know, uh, why do we read this text? Well, partly we need to read this text because as Americans, we need to know the truth about. Um, what slavery was, yeah. right, and and the reality of racism across American history, and that without that we can't really navigate the world that we that we live in. Um, that's one reason. A, a second reason, which doesn't contradict, but I think goes along, is what if you read this as a text about the human condition? Mm-hmm. That it that maybe every person, in order to to achieve moral agency has to go through stages that would be similar to what Douglas would know, hopefully not in the dire circumstances that Douglas does, but um, that there is, um, you know, something about um, an intellectual liberation of seeing what your opinions are and seeing what their alternatives are and really owning them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also a, a, a moral physical liberation where you have to stand up and, and accept the sacrifices 
that go along with with moral activity in in the world. Um, that that's um, that's really the you know that that may be a picture of what human excellence is. I think that's right, and I think you know especially important in this moment is is the recognition that you know those two modes of reading that you suggested, Tom, are not separate from one another. They coexist in Douglas's text, and he he integrates them um, as the you know the great. Uh, thinker that he is, right? He sees them as as um, as caught up in one another, and I think as Americans, um, that is also part of our heritage. the The brutalities of of racial slavery um, and the ongoing problem of white supremacy is is part of that legacy, and so is this response to it by by Frederick Douglass. Uh, and I think that, you know, one of the things that you pointed out to me before we started talking, Tom, uh, on the podcast is that Douglas frames this as an apostrophe uh, and an apostrophe is. That's because I didn't know what the word apostrophe <laughs> meant. Well, it's an address to a person. I mean, I know what it means. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a person or some kind of personified object. And the, the, the critical thing about the apostrophe is that the thing is not there. Um and we might ask ourselves, you know, with an apostrophe to the moving multitude of ships. And so what is it about the ships that is there and not there for Douglas? And like to the degree he identifies himself with the ships, to what degree is Douglas there and not there? Because he's he's very much grounded in his you know material condition of an enslaved man in a racist society. Um, and at the same time, he is thinking himself out of that racist society. He is thinking himself into Pennsylvania, where slavery had been abolished since the 1780s. Uh, and so, you know, that that way of being of two minds or being of many minds about oneself yes. is is part of Douglas's insight here. And it's it's part of what makes us capable of achieving our own freedom, whether that is a, a mental kind of freedom or a physical kind of freedom. And for Douglas, it's both. For Douglas, it's both, right. Um, I, you know, I think that's that's really true. And, and I mean, it's, I think it's important when he's addressing the ships, I mean, they're, they're the physical ships, but they also represent something imaginatively to him, mm-hmm. right? That they're ghosts and that that he is thinking about what what do they mean, right? And that's that's what... That's the thing that I think is so hard, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with freshmen, I mean, I love freshmen and, and almost all of my teaching is with freshmen, but to get people to read things imaginatively, to see that uh, an image may be actually an image. It's not just the thing that, that it claims to be, but it, but it also bespeaks some larger meaning. I think that's um, right. That's, the- yeah. It's just hard to, to, you know, because you can't somehow tell someone how to do it. They have to somehow get it. Um, I also wanted to, to mention one thing that, uh, and not to lose track of it, that that at the core of the speech is the foundational question of, is there a God, mm-hmm. right? And um, now Douglas uh, in the, his later life is a very political person and has to be very political and has to think about what he says in public, right? Mm-hmm. But, but at this moment, this is a moment of maximum, as it were, vulnerability, uh-huh. right? And it's not entirely clear to me what Douglas's answer to the question is. Yeah. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> that and, and you know, and for a good reason. So, so if you read, this is one of the things that that I love when I when I teach this text. But if you go to the end of the book, um, you know, at the end of the book, there's this appendix, uh, which I'm sure that you have studied intensively, Sarah. Um, and but the point of the appendix is that he has to he has to reassure his readers that I'm not actually not, you know, calling into into question the existence of the Christian God, right? Uh, that I only meant the you know the the false God of those evil uh, slaveholders, <laughs> right? But he obviously got pushback on on this precise issue, yeah. and and you can see why, right? That that intellectuals that what one of the things that you do when you start thinking about things is you start questioning big things about your society and not just small things. That's right. That's um, how you know you're so. getting the work done when the <laughs> when the big questions start to come in. There's this moment usually when the Athenians try to kill you. Is that, <laughs> is that when you <laughs> in the first or second week of class? Uh, Whenever I, I teach a first year seminar um, on the uh, on the history of medicine, and we talk about uh, the history of different narratives about illness and epidemics, I'm teaching it again this year, it's particularly relevant in light of COVID nineteen. But there's always this moment about you know a week or two in where someone puts their hand up and says, "But what if we? What if everything we know is wrong?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's like wonderful. <laughs> now we can get to work. That's right. That's right. Now, now the class has begun. Yeah, um, yeah. that's a that's a feature, not a bug, of your right. college experience. That's right. Um, and I think that what is um, so nourishing about that dimension of the university classroom is that it is a real respite. Maybe especially now, from from the you know the binarizing voices of public discourse where you're either with me or you're against me. Uh, And really there's this whole other mode that we can think in that we could potentially live in. And that I think Douglas is encouraging us in here um, as he's thinking about these very big questions um, about the nature of the universe, whether or not, you know, we're alone in our condition of suffering. Uh, and he, so he sort of goes back and forth between that as well. Uh, and the big question about, you know, is there a God is, is sort of at the center of, of that, that larger litany of questions. Well, uh, on that uh, note, I uh, hope you're not going to ask me to uh, answer that question. Um, that will be that, that. That's next time, Tom. <laughs> that's next time. Tune in, right. everyone. I, I hate to I hate to tell you, but uh, we we have a we have a, a whole other guest on a whole other topic for next time. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so uh, so everyone, you should. Uh, uh, I, I want to thank Sarah for this conversation. That that it's been really fantastic. And and, likewise, uh, Tom. Thank you very much. You know you make the case for these things better than, than I can, which is I think part of the reason why I'm trying to get you to do this. <laughs> um, but uh, if for, for those of you who have been um, interested and, and have comments uh, have disagreed with something that we said, well, first of all, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> is that the right message? No. Um, no, but first of all, we want to hear, we want to hear why we were wrong. That's the thing that we want. Um, we do, you can leave comments, I believe on the, on the webpage of the, the podcast. You can also email uh, us at politics and the humanities, uh, no spaces, um, but, but it's all spelled the normal way, politics and the humanities at gmail.com. 
uh, we would love to hear from you and, and um, hear your your responses. Um, we are going to have another episode, Sarah, which uh, I think uh, we're hoping to tape in, in just a few weeks here. So, okay. so come back and check that out. Make sure to subscribe. I think that's the thing you're supposed to say on the podcast. I think so. We're slowly moving into the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Pretty soon we'll figure out how to do the Zoom thing. Yeah, right. A couple weeks. Yeah, exactly. We're, our whole life will be on Zoom. Well, Sarah, I think we're going to call it quits here, but but um, thank you so much for this this time. It's been great. Likewise, Tom. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning in.